Well, good morning. That's good seeing all of you guys. Welcome to Forest Park. Um, if you have your Bible, it says turn to, to John chapter 1. Uh, before we get into the Word, I just want to thank all of you that did participate um, in our member gathering last week. I hope it was encouraging to you um, as we kind of talked about uh, some of the plans and we kick off the fall season and prayed over our leaders. And then also don't forget, if you are not aware of it, don't forget uh, that life groups are starting uh, this week. And so if you want to find a life group, you can uh, either go to our website or you can ask the person next to you uh, what group they go to. And maybe you guys can hook up. I don't know how, how that works for you. Um, but, but let's get into to John uh, chapter 1. And, and so um, I have to be honest, or I have to admit, um, I, um, I do regret going through John, to be quite honest. Like as I was studying and I'm like, what in the world did I get my, myself into? And I wanted to change my mind because uh, just going through the Psalms, the messages came so easy. It hardly took any work for me to put a message together. And then John came and I'm like, oh no. But the problem is I said we're going to do it and I didn't want to go back on it. Uh, so we're in it, okay? And so uh, we're going to go through John uh, chapter 1, verse 1 through 18. And, and so really the purpose of of our series. Uh, and this is what I'd like to see is, is going to be the same purpose as John and why he wrote this book. I figured why come up with my own purpose if John came up already with a purpose. And John gives us his purpose statement in John 20 verse 30. This is what he says. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So, so the fundamental question that John is addressing is not who is Jesus, but rather who is the Messiah, who is the Christ, who is the Son of God. It is a question of identity that he's trying to, to relate to us. And so he's going to show us that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. And when you believe in him, you will have life. And, and so my hope for us in our study in the Gospel of John is that ultimately we will see the identity of Jesus as the Christ, as the Son of God, and my invitation is going to be the same today and for the rest of our study through John. My invitation is so that you may believe and have life. So if you don't believe, my invitation is so that you may believe in Him and have life. And if you do believe already in Him, my invitation is going to be so that you may continue to believe in Him and have life. That's the invitation. That's the hope. Believe in Jesus. Put your hope in Jesus. Look to Jesus. Now, one of the things you're going to notice is that as we walk through the Gospel of John, it is noticeably remarkable difference between the Gospel of John and the other three Gospels that scholars call the Synoptic Gospels. So, for example, John, uh, John excludes a great deal of material. So, so for example, in the, in the gospel, according to John, there are no parables. There are no accounts of the transfiguration. There's no institution of the Lord's Supper. There's no casting out of demons. There's no uh, record of, uh, of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness by Satan. But then John also includes a lot of material that the other Gospels do not include. So, so for example, the, the, the miracle of Jesus turning the water into wine, or Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, or his ministry in Samaria, or the resurrection of Lazarus, or all the many times he appears in Jerusalem and he's teaching in the temple. Like all the other Gospels don't really have that, and yet John has it. And we're going to notice that the style of writing is remarkably different. Now, now, I don't have time to go through each one. Uh, I just want you to be aware of the differences, but I do find something really interesting that might help you answer the question, why is this gospel so different than all the other gospels? Uh, it's interesting to note, although scholars disagree with him, they're probably gonna disagree until Jesus comes back, uh, most scholars agree that the gospel of John was written anywhere between 8080 in AD 95. Uh, Jerusalem was completely destroyed in AD 70, so the gospel was kind of written after the destruction of Jerusalem. Here's why I think it's interesting. Because that means that most of the other gospels, 
Two out of the three, Matthew, we kind of don't know. We can't say with certainty. But two out of the three, or maybe all three, were, were more than likely written before John's gospel. Which means if they've been already written, if they've already been circulated among the apostles and among the churches and the Christians of reading it, more than likely John probably read some of these gospels. And so the question you're wondering is, is, okay, if he knew about these other gospels and if he's read the material from these other gospels, why did he not use that as his research paper and borrow some of that material for his gospel. And so with this information, I, I think we can assume that obviously John wrote it and that he read one or more of these two gospels. And, and so I think there's a couple conclusions that we can draw of why this gospel is so different. I don't think John uh, wrote his gospel uh, to supersede or to correct the other gospels that were already circulating. But maybe he found the purpose a little inadequate. Maybe John has been ministering to the Jews in Palestine and those that have been dispersed uh, for so long that as he's reading their Gospels, he's wondering, there's a couple of things that's not addressing. There's a question that's always coming up, and this Gospel is, is not addressing it. And so from that perspective, as John has read it, and from experience of ministering to these people, and one of the last books was written, he decides to take all of his ideas and put it on paper. And this is where we get the Gospel of John. Now, please do not take my words and twist it. I am not saying that the other Gospels are insufficient. I believe those other Gospels with the Gospel of John is the inerrant, authoritative, sufficient word of God. But what I am saying is they have different purposes, different audiences. And so from John, he felt like those were lacking to an audience he specifically wanted to address. And so he puts his ideas in writing, and maybe this can explain to us why his gospel is so distinct from the other gospels. And what we're going to find, even from verse 1, the differences of the other gospels. Like, like it does, John's gospel does not begin with an historical development from a genealogy to Joseph and Mary uh, and the three and the wise men and the shepherds and Bethlehem. He doesn't begin like that. He begins with thinking about the coming of the eternal son, what the coming of God means. And so let's look at uh, John chapter 1, verse 1, and then unpack it, and then hopefully we will get through all 18 verses in 30-some minutes. It says this, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, in our Bibles, the original text did not have titles, it didn't have chapters, it didn't have verses. The reason why I bought our Bibles have it is because scholars wanted to help us kind of outline Scripture a little bit. Uh, because it's such a vast document, it's overwhelming, it kind of helps us kind of outline some of it. How does the flow of the text go? Something we can always go back to and refer to. Hey, did you read John, verse, uh, John chapter 1, verse 1? Because instead of saying, hey, did you read John? You're like, well, which part? So, so that was kind of given to us to help us. And so scholars uh, mention the very first 18 verses as the prologue, Okay. So the best way for us to look at the prologue is to pretend the prologue is like a foyer to a mansion. And in this foyer, in this prologue, it's going to introduce to us the rest of the book of John. So what it does is it invites us in and it introduces some major themes. So think about a foyer and a mansion. What do you do? In this foyer, you come and you greet your guests. You invite them in. You establish whether you want their shoes on or off, where you want them to put their coats. But how much time do you spend in the foyer? Not much. The foyer is there to introduce and invite people in. And this is how we need to approach this prologue because some of you, I'm guaranteeing you, including myself, you're going to be frustrated after this message because in this prologue, I'm going to touch on themes without fully unpacking it. 
And what I want to remind you of is, this is the foyer people. Let's not spend all of our time in the foyer because if I spend all my time in the foyer, you don't want to look at the house anymore. So let's look at this foyer. Let's look at these themes. And then hopefully the rest of, 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 of the Gospel of John will further unpack it as you see he revisits these themes. Now look at how he starts off his foyer experience with, with his readers. He says, in the beginning was the word. Now this verse immediately reminds us of another uh, book of the Bible. Well, what, what, what book of the Bible does this remind you? And a hint is the very first book of the Bible. Genesis. So, so, so in, in Genesis and in John here, he, the context shows us that the beginning is absolute. Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning, God. John 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. So in other words, we know the beginning is absolute. It's the beginning of all things, the beginning of the universe, the origin. And John tells us, in the beginning was the Word. Now, now the question is, what does he mean by the word. Now, because I know you guys are biblical scholars, you know what the Greek word for word is. It is logos. Everybody knows it. And so, do we, and so what we have to understand is in the, in the Greek culture, that word logos was used by different people in different settings with different meanings. So everybody would use that word in a different way, and everybody in that Greek culture would know what you're talking about, just like what we would use certain words in different contexts that would have different meaning. And so the question is, okay, do we go to all the, the Greek times of how they used the word and trying to figure out what the word word means? Or do we go to a source that John is constantly alluding to, constantly pointing to, and maybe there get our meaning what Logos means? So he's already kind of alluded to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, which means the Old Testament. So I think the best way for us to, to get the, the meaning of the word Logos is look at the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament... The theme is, and again, I can't do every single verse, otherwise we'll be here for 10 hours. The Word of God in the Old Testament can relate to God's powerful activity of creation. Okay, so the very first word of word, the Word of God relates to God's powerful activity in creation because how did God create everything? He spoke. He spoke everything into existence. So the word of God relates to his activity, his powerful activity of creation. Other times in the Old Testament, the word of God relates to revelation. So when God revealed himself to Moses in a burning bush, what did God do? Was it just flames flickering? No, what did God do? He spoke. He made himself known to Moses. He revealed his name and said, I am. Other parts in Scripture, we read about the word as it relates to deliverance. So when the people of God uh, felt ill and they were on the brink of death, in Psalm 107 verse 20, it tells us that God sent his word and it healed them. He rescued them from the pit. So now we see the Word of God is relating to creation, it's relating to revelation, it's relating to deliverance. But what else? The Word of God relates to, to wisdom. Because the Old Testament, uh, the psalmist would tell us that the Word of God is good, it's wise. And the Word of God also relates to the law of God that was revealed. God spoke to Moses, Moses wrote it down, and the law was a revelation of who God is, but also his standards. So throughout Scripture, the Word of God relates to creation, it relates to um, revelation, it relates to deliverance, it relates to wisdom, it relates to law, it also even relates to judgment. So which word was John thinking of when he said, in the beginning was the Word? Was he thinking about creation, deliverance, salvation, judgment? Which one? In fact, he was thinking all of them. So you're not going to remember all of this, and that's okay. So here's, if you're taking notes, here's an easy way to, to, to understand what the word means. The word 
is God's self-expression. The word is God's self-expression, okay? It's his self-expression in creation, in revelation, in salvation. And this personification of that work word makes it suitable for John to apply this title to God's ultimate self-disclosure, the person of his own son. So when he says, in the beginning was the word, he says, in the beginning was God's self-expression, where he reveals himself. And then he, keep, he, he, he keeps on saying, he says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. Now, this is kind of confusing because throughout the Old Testament, it made sure that we believe that God is only one. Well, what does God continually tell his people? Have no other gods before you because I am the only God. In the great Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, he says, Hear, O Israel, for the Lord your God is one. But now, John is kind of telling us, in the beginning was God's self-expression, and he was with God. So the word is eternal and self-existent. He's God's self-expression, and he was with God. In other words, he is God's own peer. So it's kind of confusing, okay? So in the beginning, the word God's self-existent, but now he's also the peer of God. So now that we're thinking, okay, so now there's more than one. Maybe he is less God than God actually is because God is only one. But keep on reading verse 1. He says, not only was he with God, but the word, look at it, was God. So just when you think this word, who is God's self-expression, was with God, God's own peer, might be any less than God, John is telling us, uh-uh, he was God. He is God. In other words, he is God's own self. So in other words, somehow, John shows us in the very first verse that the word is differentiable from God. He was with God, and yet he identifies the word as God. So distinct, and yet also one. And here's the point. What John is wanting to show you is he wants to take you, he wants you to say, hey, let me take your glasses off of you. Here, here's some new sets of glasses. This is how I want you to read my gospel. That the very words and deeds of Jesus is the very words and deeds of God. And if you read it through those glasses, that's what I'm trying to accomplish. And if that is not true, the whole book is blasphemous and let's burn it to the ground. Verse 1 is basically, here's these glasses. Put it on and read the rest of my gospel through these glasses. It's almost like, hey, my house is 3D. In order to really see what's going on, you need these, these glasses. So he introduces to us this word, this God's self-expression is different from God, God's own peer, peer, and yet one with God because he is God. Look, look, look what else John tells us about this word. Verse 2 says this, he was with God in the beginning. So in other words, if you did not quite grasp verse 1, he just reminds you, oh yeah, look at verse 2. It's a reiteration of verse 1. He was with God in the beginning. And then this is what he tells us about this word. He says, all things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. So, so the very first thing he tells us about the word, not only is the word God's self-expression, but if you're taking notes, that it, it is the word that creates us. And so in verse 3, he insists in a positive and negative sense that the Word is God's creating agent. Positively, it says, through Him all things were created, and negatively, he says, without Him nothing was created. 
So just when you want to kind of take this, this word as maybe less than God, he says, no, he is self-existent, the expression of self-expression of God, he's God's own peer, peer, and yet he is God. And he created everything. Now, John did not come up with this idea by himself. He's not the only one that wrote about this word that is God's creation agent and creating everything. Because the Apostle Paul, which wrote the book of Colossians, which was actually before the book of John, talks about Jesus as kind of the image of the invisible God and the creating agent of everything. And so in Colossians, one of my favorite verses, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 to 17, it says, He, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for everything was created by Him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. Think about that. The visible and the invisible. The thrones, the dominions, the rulers, the authorities were created by who? by Jesus, the Word who created us. And John says, in the beginning was the Word. He was always existent. He is different from God and yet one with God. And he created everything, and nothing can exist apart from him. But then he keeps on going. He, he gives us the, 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 uh, the second thing about the word. Uh, look at verse 4. He says, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. So, so if you're taking notes, here's the second thing he reveals to us about the word, or the third thing. Uh, the word is God's self-expression. The word creates us. If you're taking notes, the word gives us light and life. The word gives us light and life. Now, again, the question is, what does all this mean? What does he mean by light and life? Is he talking about creation or is he talking about salvation? Well, well let's look at this. So when you read verses 4 and 5, what verse would you look at as the immediate context of verses 4 and 5? You would look at verse 3. And what is verse 3 talking about? It's talking about creation so since the context is creation and you're talking about jesus this word being light and life as the acting agent of creation you would think okay he's talking about creation so in other words when you read genesis chapter one it talks about there was darkness and the spirit was hovering over the face of the earth and when god spoke let there be light light pierced into the darkness See, one of the things we have to understand, and John's going to unpack the, the, this, the, this imagery of light and darkness, life and death, that darkness is not more powerful than light, but darkness is simply the absence of light. There's not this dualism between light and darkness, and oh my gosh, who's going to win? No. Darkness flees when light arrives because darkness is just simply the absence of light. And when the light of the world appeared on the scene of creation, it pierced into the darkness, the darkness fled. And as a result, life came into being. And so John is telling us this word gives us light and life. He brought light into the darkness and he gave life to all things. And just when you think, okay, that's what it means, you read verses 6 to 8. It says this, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about, about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. 
So this light that appears is introduced by John. John came as a witness. In other words, he was obedient to his commissioning. He received from God to testify and bear witness about this light. John says, I'm not the light. I'm telling you who the light is. It's not me. Now, from these verses, it seems like it has nothing to do with creation, but rather a almost a revelation of truth as the light is revealed. That's why you need a witness of it. As humanity have lived in ignorance, the light of the world has entered into the scenes to reveal truth to all. And then later on, this light and darkness, darkness has to do with where, where, where John will tell us that people did not want the light, but what did, they do? What, what did they want? They wanted darkness. They loved darkness. That's why they rejected the light. And they have no life. So now we read verses 4 to 5 in the context of reading verses 6 to 9. And has nothing to do with creation, but has everything to do with now almost salvation and a revealing of truth. So here's the question. What does John mean by light and life? Is he talking about creation or is he talking about salvation? Do we read verses 4 to 5 in light of verse 6 or 4 and 5 in light of verses 6 through 9? And the answer is both. This is the complexity of John's book. Can you see why they don't want to study it? Seriously, I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to make it through it. But this is the complexity of it. And, 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 and here's my point. Again, I'm trying to help you see this. Is that the more we read the Gospel of John, the more we see different connections of what he's alluding to because he's using so much symbolism and metaphors in his writing that just when you think, oh, it's creation, you're keeping reading, you're like, away it's salvation and he is saying it's both people it's both so 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 john tells us the same light that brought life to creation brings eternal life to this world that is filled with corruption and death so not only is the word in the beginning and god's self-expression the word created us the word is the light and the life but the third one, or fourth one, if you're taking notes, is that the word confronts and divides us. Like, look at verse, verse 10. It says, He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Now, most people did not look to Jesus and say, oh man, I'm so glad you came. Finally, the light of the world is here. We're all saved. Now, how did people respond? Some were puzzled. Some were repulsed by him. Some were ashamed to even be in his presence because they preferred darkness to the light. So his coming did not guarantee a universal revival where everybody is turning to him. And this is what John is reflecting on. And so he confronts us because we all are in darkness and he is the light. And he divides us. Those that are believing in him, running towards him, or those that are running away from him. You know what? I, I, I just prefer darkness over you. Verses 12 to, to 13 says this, But to all who did receive him, he gave them right to be children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. So in other words, the people that did receive him, that did display such faith in the word, he gave them right to be children of God. It's like the same privilege they get to enjoy as being the covenant people of God. And what we have to understand is this. We are, who have believed in Jesus, are sons of God through adoption. Jesus has the only unique sonship with the Father. Ours is ultimately through adoption. And this came about 
It was simply born. Look, look at verse, verse 13. How was this born? Not of natural descent or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. Think about this. I know this is going to sound silly. I think, no, there's not little kids here. I had to use an analogy. Think about where children came about. Mommy, daddy, loves each other. Hey, let's have children. You can fill in the rest. John says, that's not how it happened. It didn't happen because mommy and daddy decided to have kids and, and, and do the thing. It didn't come from the flesh. It didn't come from a decision. It came from God. This new birth, this new work comes from God. And they are different because it came from God who did something completely new in them. It's not new creation. This is a new creation. This is a new birth. He's starting something over in them as they truly believe who Jesus really is. So John tells us, see how awesome this foyer is? This word, the self-expression of God is the word that created us. It is the light and life. It confronts us and it divides us. But then look at what he says in verse 14. I'm just going to read the rest of the passage and then we'll, we'll unpack it. He says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 15, John testified concerning him and exclaimed, This was the one of whom I said, The one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Indeed, we've all received grace upon grace from his fullness, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. Uh, your brain is probably hurting and you don't understand any. Don't worry. Uh, this is why I didn't want to do John. It, it took hours to kind of unpack. What is he saying? What does it mean? But, but again, let's go through verse by verse. So the, the, the fourth thing that he tells us about the word, if you're taking notes, not only that the word created us as the light and life, but it also confronts us and divides us. He tells us in verse 14 that the word became flesh. So if you're taking notes, the word becomes flesh that means the word becomes human being this is what scholars and christians refer to as the incarnation it literally means the in fleshing and what we have to understand is the word becomes something he was not human being see here's what we have to understand Jesus was always God. He was not always man. This is very important for you to understand. Jesus was always divine. He was always God. But he was not always man. This is very important for us to understand. And when he became human, John's word is very clear in telling us. He doesn't say that the word merely clothed himself in humanity or pretended to be human or existed in a man named Jesus. The language is precise. The word became flesh. And so Jesus was not always man. And when he became flesh, he became man, but... He did not cease to be God. This is, what, this is very important for you to understand. I know for some of you, like, oh, that I not do with my life. It has everything to do with your life. It has the ability to save you. Because if Jesus ceases to be God and, be, and, 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 and becoming a man, he is not Lord. And if Jesus did not become a man, he could not save you. He was both, and this is why theologians call him Jesus, the God-man, fully God and fully man. And this is what verse 14 means. Now, for some of you, you're thinking, even including myself, okay, that's great. What's the significance of this? What does it mean that he took on flesh? What does that mean for us? 
John says, I'm so glad you asked. Let me tell you. And what we're going to see is he's going to allude to the Old Testament passages in Exodus as he's drawing these parallels between the word who becomes flesh and what that means. So so if you're taking notes, the very first significance of this truth of the word becoming flesh is tabernacle and temple. Just just write it down. I'll explain it to you. Tabernacle and temple. So, So verse 14 says this. The word became flesh and did what? Dwelt among us. What does the word dwelt mean? It literally means he tabernacled among us. And where in the Bible do we read about the tabernacle? We read it in the Old Testament, in Exodus. And what was the purpose of the tabernacle? The tabernacle was instituted by God at Mount Sinai, and it was a special place where the most holy of holy was, where a priest would be able only to enter into the most holy place once a year to bring atonement between himself and for the others. In other words, the tabernacle was a place where a most holy God would meet with sinful people and forgive their sins through a sacrifice, the blood that would be covering the ark. And eventually the tabernacle will be replaced by the temple. So what is John saying? What is he hinting at? That the word becomes flesh dwelt among us what is he hinting at he's hinting there's no need for the tabernacle there's no need for the temple a most holy god is coming to meet with sinful people where when the word became flesh that's what he's saying you want to meet the holy god come to the word who became flesh. But he's not done here. The second significance, if you're taking note, is glory. So glory. Look at verse 14. He says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Then he says, we observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father. So what does John say? John says, we've seen his glory. Now who else asked the Lord to see his glory? We were in Exodus. His name is Moses. Moses asked the Lord, let me see your glory. Exodus 33, verse 18 to 19. Moses said, please let me see your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. So in other words, God's glory is manifested in God's goodness. So so, so think about this. God's glory is evident in creation. Why? Because creation manifests the goodness of God. When God created everything, as he was creating it, what did he say? He declared it to be good. For he's manifesting the goodness of God. But John is not talking about creation. John is saying, oh, we have seen the glory of him. What is he saying? What is he alluding to? Where is God's goodness most clearly displayed? when Jesus is glorified at the cross. So John is saying, at the cross of Christ, the glory of God, the goodness of of his goodness was manifested for all of us to see because that is where he died for sinful humanity and is at the cross of Christ where we as sinners can meet a holy God. The third significance of the incarnation is, if you're taking notes, grace and truth. Again, look, look at verse 14, man. Verse 14 is so packed with so much. He says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observe the glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What does he mean, full of grace and truth? What is he alluding to? Again, think about this imagery of Moses. Moses was hiding in the cleft cleft of a a rock. 
And the Lord had all of his goodness pass in front of him, and the Lord proclaimed his own name. And this is what the Lord proclaimed, Exodus 34, verse 6. He says, the Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. Now, the, the Hebrew, in Hebrew, the pairs of nouns translated love and faithfulness can also be rendered as grace and truth. And this is what John renders. So when God displayed himself to Moses, he displayed himself and proclaimed his name as full of grace and truth as he made all of his goodness pass in front of him. And so what is John alluding to? The very same God that declared his goodness and his name before Moses is the word full of grace and truth, faithful love. And as John is reflecting on who Jesus is, as, he's, as Jesus is manifesting God's goodness, and he is saying Jesus is full of grace and truth, He's understanding that this grace and truth came and was bought at the cross where Jesus paid for our sins. But he's not done. He, he keeps on talking. Not only is the significance of the word becoming flesh as he tabernacles among us, as he manifests God's goodness, as he reveals grace and truth. But the, the fourth one is grace and law. We're, we're almost done. Look at verse 16. It says this. Indeed, we have received grace upon grace from his fullness. So, so what does grace upon grace mean? I don't think it means grace on top of grace. I don't, but rather, I think the best way to look at it is as we have already received a grace in place of a grace already given. So it's not grace on top of grace, but a grace that we've already received that is replaced by another grace. You're like, well, how do you know it? Again, look at verse 17. He says, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So when the law was given to Moses, what was that? That was an act of, of, an act of grace where in the law, God reveals his character to them. He reveals his standard, how you relate to him. And law is also there to protect them. And it's a grace that they've received. But now what John is telling us, there is a grace that was already given and a grace that's replacing the grace that was already given. Grace in law was given through Moses. And that was a good thing. That was a gracious thing. But the grace and truth is replacing the grace and the law. It is a better grace. It is a ultimate grace. It is a grace that replaces the old grace. And it's all bound up with this new covenant. Last point and then we're done, I promise. The last significance of the incarnation of Christ, the word became flesh, is seeing God. If you're taking notes, seeing God. L look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God. In other words, John is reminding us no one has ever seen God. And the person who came closest to seeing God was Moses. What did Moses say? Moses asked, let me see your face. I want to see you. And what did the Lord say? You can't handle it. You can't see it and live. You will certainly die. But there's an exception. Look at the rest of verse 18. No one has ever seen the God, the one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. What is John saying here? If you want to see God, look to Jesus. He has revealed God to us. God, in all of his transcendent splendor, we will not be able to see until the last day. But when the word became flesh, God, not ceasing to be God, became a human. And his name is Jesus. And he revealed himself to us. And what does Jesus tell Philip? 
In John 14, verse 9, Jesus says, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And this is what John says. The Word became flesh, revealed God to us. We have seen His glory. We have seen Him. Now, we'll wrap it up here. Here's application. I know for some of you, you're frustrated. Maybe you're a little confused. That's okay. Uh, Hopefully, the rest of the book of John, uh, we can unpack for you and unpack these themes. But, But here's my application. This is what I want us to understand. You want to know what the character of God is like? Study Jesus. You want to know what the holiness of God is like? Study Jesus. You want to know what the the wrath of God is like? Study Jesus. You want to know what the forgiveness of God is like? Study Jesus. You want to know what the glory of God is like? Study Jesus all the way to the cross. Study Jesus, and this is why we are in the book of John, so that we may know him, and we, as we believe in him, or continue to believe that we may have life, because apart from him, there is no life. There is only darkness and only death. And the most important thing we can study and the most important thing we can look to and the most important thing we can cling to regardless of our circumstances is Jesus Christ. And this is why we're in the book of John. Let let, let me pray for us and then we get to sit at the table. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, our minds can barely fathom and uncomprehend who you are the triune God, distinct and yet one, the self-existent, self-sustaining God who is not dependent on a single thing and yet all of creation is dependent on you. You are the word that created us. You are the word that gives light and life. You are the word that confronts us and divides us. You are the word that became flesh. And by becoming flesh, you dwelt among us. You manifested God's goodness. You showed us grace and truth. You gave us grace on top of grace, grace replacing a better grace so that we can see you. And we thank you for that. As we get to sit at the table, there are so many truths for us to focus on, but I I just want to narrow it maybe to, to one. One of the things that we find ourselves wrestling in life is this idea of sometimes feeling alone. Sometimes we feel abandoned. Sometimes we feel like God is far off, he's distant, and he really doesn't care about us. And what John does, he reminds us of this word that became flesh and tabernacled among us as he made God known to us, as he brought light and life into our dark world. And what this table helps reminding us of is that we are not alone that God has not abandoned us, that he is with us, that he is for us. And how do we know? We look to Jesus. And this table helps us to look to Jesus because think about what this table represents. We 
as the people of God, sons and daughters of God, get to sit and eat in the presence of God because of what our older brother, who has the unique sonship and his name is Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross. As his body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us, as we take these elements, we eat. As we eat in the presence of our Lord, as we eat in the presence of our Father, as we eat in the presence of one another, as we're reminded we're not alone. We're in the presence of our Father. We're in the presence of our older brother. We have his Holy Spirit living inside of us. We're surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ as we can lock arms together. And no matter how tough life gets, no matter how complicated our world gets, we are not alone. So we can come and we can eat. We can look to Christ. We can remember who Christ is and what he's done for us. That we're part of a big family, a global family, and no one can take that away from us. For this family was not born out of your decision, but rather out of the will of God who has adopted you as sons and daughters through what the older brother did as he bought you through his blood. And we thank him for that. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you Our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you. Holy Spirit, we thank you. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for indwelling us and filling us. We thank you for transforming us and making us new. We thank you for taking our sin and our debt and paying it in full. And we thank you that no matter what happens in life, we are not alone. That you are with us. That you are for us. That you have made yourself known and we can walk with you. Help us to believe so that we may have life. And in times of doubt, in times of even unbelief, help us to continue believing so that we may have life in your name. We thank you for that, and we praise you for that. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand. Let us worship the word.